Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures that teach us about the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for your son. And we praise you for the gift of a foreign, alien righteousness that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you lift up our hearts and our eyes to behold the risen Lamb, our perfect righteousness, by faith this morning. Be exalted as your word is proclaimed. And as always, we pray that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to reveal the Son of God. And we pray that you would do this for the glory of your beautiful name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so what we see going into this text before we get to verse 8, in verses 4 through 6, the Apostle Paul has used himself as an example of what it means to have confidence in the flesh. And in verses 4 through 6, he runs down the, the privileges, the spiritual advantages that he had. Uh, so he mentions in verse 5, being circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And with all of these very real privileges and advantages, he's able to say in verse 7 that he counts all of these things as loss because of the surpassing greatness of Jesus for the sake of Christ. Now, we saw that he was using accounting language, that is, the language of assets and liabilities. And what we saw is that he's saying that the things that he thought, he once thought were assets, all of these privileges, they're actually liabilities. They don't go in the gain column, they go in the loss column. Because they were things that were actually, though they were good in themselves, they were keeping him from God because he was trying to be made right with God through these things. And so in in one sense, last week's message was looking at true Christianity from a negative standpoint. 
That is, we were describing what it isn't, what true Christianity is not. It's not relying on anything other than Jesus. This week, we're going to look at what it is. We'll be looking at it positively, what, what Chris, true Christianity is. And so what I want to do is I want to summarize what this message is about in one sentence and then try to show where I get this from the text. So here's the one sentence, the big idea. The essence of true Christianity is experiential saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The essence of true Christianity is experiential saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the first thing that we'll look at is experiential knowledge. Look again at verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. True Christianity can be summed up in that last phrase, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, the reason I say experiential knowledge is because of the meaning of the word translated knowing in verse 8 and know him down in verse 10. The word there, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, is not just talking about a knowledge of the facts, but the definition of the Greek word there is is to know through personal experience or firsthand acquaintance. And so experiential knowledge is contrasted with mere theoretical knowledge. You know, it's possible to know who Jesus Christ is, but not actually know him. This passage is talking about knowing a person. Christianity is not primarily a philosophy. It's not a theory. Christianity at its root is about a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of people, especially here in the West, have heard the name of Jesus Christ many times. Jesus Christ is famous. There's been movies made about him. There's been countless books written about him. He's been the subject of many religious courses in academic circles. Many people even use his name when they're mad and can't think of a curse word to say. They fill it in with his holy name. You hear his name used this way in most R-rated movies. If you've grown up in church, you've heard his name all the time. Jesus is famous. But to hear about him is one thing. To actually know him is entirely another thing. One of my favorite actors is Denzel Washington. Any Denzel fans up in here in the building? Anybody? Okay. Hey, amen. Amen. All right. I, I grew up watching his movies, and 
You know, a few years back, I heard that he was going to be on Broadway acting in a Shakespeare play. So I was able to get tickets. They were good seats, maybe about 10 rows back. And it was a relatively small theater. So it was quite an experience to be in the theater watching one of my favorite actors in a play. But then it got even better because after the show, he was gracious enough to stand, to come out and wait for every single person who sat in and watched the show, and he shook everybody's hand and took a picture with everybody. And so I'm at the back of the line like, wow, I'm, I'm about to take a picture. I got, I got my, my iPhone. I'm ready to go. And something was interesting that I noticed the closer and closer I got to Denzel. The closer I got to him, I realized that though he was standing next to people taking the picture, there was actually a barrier in between him and the crowd. So there was a little fence there. So, so you, like, if you actually wanted to get to him, you would have had to climb over the fence. And the other thing that I noticed is that there were two big gentlemen behind him with guns ready to act if anybody wanted to act a fool because they love Denzel so much. And so what I realized in that moment is that there's a big difference between me taking a picture with Denzel, and I got the picture, I can show it to my friends and brag about it, but there's a big difference between that and having him as one of the contacts in my phone, right? Denzel ain't texting me no time soon. And if I show up at his house talking about, hey, yo, what's up? Remember me? Broadway? Julius C., what's, what's up? No. Uh-uh. Calling the cops. Right? I think many people are like that with Jesus. Maybe you've heard about him. Maybe you've gotten close enough to him that people would even associate you with him but there's actually a barrier between you and Jesus and you don't actually know him. It's a big difference between hearing about him and knowing him. And Paul doesn't say here, he doesn't say, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing about Christ Jesus. He says the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. No one is a Christian who has only heard about Jesus. And this must be said because there are many false substitutes for knowing Jesus. I'll name three. One false substitute for knowing Jesus, doctrinal knowledge. To be able to, to know doctrine, to know systematic theology, to know all the terminology, to know what it means what infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism and monergistic regeneration is and all of these fancy theological terms. We can know all this doctrine, and doctrine is absolutely important. It says in Titus that sound doctrine is essential, but you can know a whole bunch of doctrine without knowing Jesus. It's a false substitute. Another false substitute for knowing Jesus is good moral performance. 
good moral performance, that is, not committing some of the so-called big, bad, open sins. Basically, being a good person by the world's standards. And this is something that's common for people who grew up in Christian homes, right? So because of the, and praise God for Christian homes. Christian homes are a blessing. But one of the challenges in growing up in a Christian home is that because of the influence of parents and because the conscience has been awakened and enlightened by the word of God, there's there's a restraint oftentimes on the open sin that they commit. And so they're not doing the stuff that their non-Christian friends are doing. And so over time, they see their good moral performance as what it means to be a Christian. But being an upright, moral person is not the same as knowing Christ. Another false substitute for knowing Jesus is Christian service, ministry even, things like evangelism, good things, things that we should do, but they're not, they're not a substitute for knowing Jesus. Consider, the, what, consider what the Lord Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So the Pharisees were evangelistic. They were going on missions trips, traveling across the seas to make converts. But they didn't know Jesus. It's possible to be around Jesus and around people who love Jesus and around the stuff that is about Jesus without actually knowing him. This happened with Jesus' disciple, Philip. There's an account in John chapter 14, verse 8, and we see Jesus with his disciples. And in verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And listen to Jesus' reply, because his reply is one of the, one of the few times in the scripture that you can, you can actually sense that Jesus is hurt in his response. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I wonder if the Lord Jesus would say that to any of us this morning. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? The essence of true Christianity is experiential, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Last week we talked about Jeremiah chapter 9 and how the Apostle Paul seemed to have that passage in mind as he talked about glorying in Christ Jesus up in verse 3. Listen again to Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. It says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, 
Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. And so what you see is the Apostle Paul is taking that Old Testament idea of knowing the Lord, and he's applying it to Jesus Christ here. That I may know Christ, the worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And so just as a side note, I just have to say that if Jesus Christ is not God, it would be blasphemous for the Apostle Paul to be saying this, right? It would be blasphemous for the Apostle Paul to say, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing some created creature. <laughs> that, that would be an insult, a slap in the face of God. But Jesus Christ is God. And so Paul can say that. This experiential knowledge of God is the promise of the new covenant. So in Jeremiah chapter 31 Verse 34, anticipating this time when a new covenant will be made with the people of God, it says this. It says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. To be a Christian is to know Jesus. And do you notice how personal it is? Look again in verse 8. This, this surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, he says. It's not somebody else's Lord. It's not my mom's Lord. Not grandmom's Lord. Not my spouse's Lord. It's knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's, it's personal. He's received it for himself. You know, part of my wife's testimony is that she grew up in a church. So she was heavily involved, singing in the choir, teaching the youth. And she assumed that she was saved because of the things that she was doing. And it wasn't until she was adult, an adult that she was actually confronted with the gospel and had her profession of faith challenged. And it was then that she began to see the warnings of scripture, the warnings like the kinds of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And when she saw those things being challenged, she realized that, wait a second, these things actually applied to her. And that if she did not repent, if she had died in her sin at that moment, that she would have actually been condemned. As much as she grew up in the church and all the good Christian things that she was doing. And that is when she was awakened to the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ had died for her sins. Not just, not just generically died for sins out there somewhere, 
but that, that he died for my sins. He's Christ Jesus, my Lord. It was personal. Is this true of you this morning? Do you know Jesus in this way? You know, when you compare verse 8 in chapter 3 to chapter 2, verse 11, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, it says, it says in chapter 2, 11 that, that every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, looking ahead to the final judgment. But the mark of the Christian is to see Jesus Christ as my Lord. Not just then, when I'm standing before him, but now in this life. So test yourselves by this. How does a person know if they experientially know Jesus? I think maybe the simplest question I could ask this morning to get at that is this. Do you love him? Do you love him? The true Christian is able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 116.1, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Love for God is not merely a sentimental feeling, but it's always connected biblically with a corresponding hatred for sin. When you, when you love someone, you hate that which is opposed to that person that you love. And so Jesus says in John 14, 15, that if you love me, you will keep my commands. That's where the Lord part comes from. Jesus Christ, my Lord. Psalm 97, verse 10 says, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. The true Christian is able to sincerely, with all of his heart, say with the hymn writer, My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. That's the heart cry of the true believer. And so what does this experiential knowledge look like? What does it look like to experience this love for Jesus? Well, in one sense, it's, it's hard to put a finger on, but you know it when you see it. This is what I mean. So we have a number of weddings coming up here at DRBC. Praise God. Someone told me a long time ago that whenever I'm at a wedding and the moment comes when, when the bride comes through the door resplendent in white, and everyone turns their focus to the bride. Someone said, you know what you should do? Turn back and look at the groom. And notice the look in his eyes. And I have to say, without fail, every single time I've ever done that, I've noticed what's being talked about here. 
it, it's, it's the kind of love that blocks out everybody else in the room. It's, it's a crowded room, and that room can only see one person. It's a love that is, that is fixated on the object of his affection. That's what it means to love Jesus. Paul, he said, I count all things as loss, all things as rubbish, refuse, throw it away. I don't care what it is. All my accomplishments, everything that I've earned, everything that I own, I throw it away because it's nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He loved Jesus. To know him is to love him because he's altogether lovely. Listen to this quote from J.C. Ryle. He says, quote, sense of sin and deep hatred to it, faith in Christ and love to him, delight in holiness and longing after more of it, love to God's people and distaste for the things of the world, these, these are the signs and evidences which always accompany salvation. This is what it means to be a Christian. And I think the key in that quote is the idea of longing after more of it. That's the posture of the true believer. The believer says, I love Jesus. Oh, that I would love him even more. The true believer says, I hate sin. Oh, Lord, help me to hate it more. The true believer says, I believe in Jesus. Oh, Lord, help my unbelief. So we're not talking about being perfect here. We're talking about a direction, something that's actually genuinely happened, and then a life direction. This is the mark of the Christian. Do you know Jesus in this way this morning? It's the essence of true Christianity. Much more could be said about this, but let's look again. Let's look at our second and final point this morning. Our second point is saving knowledge. The essence of true Christianity is experiential and then saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 8, at the end of verse 8. For his sake, for Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so we've seen that, that there's there's basically two different kinds of knowledge of Jesus. There's the kind of knowledge of Jesus that doesn't save, and then there's the kind of knowledge of Jesus that does save. We're going to look at saving knowledge. And, and in this passage, we see that in Paul's mind, saving knowledge comes down to righteousness. Righteousness. Look again at verse 9. In verse 9, we see a contrast, right? He says, a righteousness of my own 
that comes from the law, so that's one kind of righteousness. And he contrasts that with the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So you have a righteousness of my own and the righteousness from God. All other human religion is some form of a righteousness of my own. That, that, that is human religion summed up. That is, I, I do something, I, 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 do the, I perform these rituals, I, I go to these events, I do these kinds of things, and on that basis, God will accept me. Right? And it, it can look a number of different ways, but you can sum it up by saying it's a righteousness of my own. And Paul contrasts that with what true Christianity is about, and that is the righteousness from God. Two completely different things. And so what we're going to talk about for the next few moments is the glorious truth of justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. Now, I know I just talked about big theological terms and how that means nothing apart from knowing Christ. And yet, if a term is biblical, we should embrace the term. And we should seek to understand what God means by the term. So we're going to talk about justification. And, and we shouldn't think that this is separate from knowing and loving Christ. In fact, it's part of what it means to know Christ. So notice that verse 9 is sandwiched in between verses 8 and 10, both of which re refer to knowing Christ, right? So at the end of verse 8, he speaks of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then at the beginning of verse 10, he says that I may know him. And so therefore, an essential part of what it means to know Christ is to know him through his way of salvation, and that way is through justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law. This is the Christian gospel. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then verse 17 says, for in it, in the gospel, a righteousness the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see that, that same terminology there? When Paul says this is the essence of the gospel, he's speaking about righteousness from God. And he's speaking about faith. And he's speaking about receiving that righteousness through faith. And so what justification does is it answers the question, how do sinners get right in the sight of a holy God? How do sinners, that is, people like us and like everyone who's ever lived except for the Lord Jesus, who have offended God with our thoughts, with our words, with our actions, with all the things that we've left undone that we should have done, how can we get right with the holy God? With the God who says he must punish sin. With the God who says be perfect. 
with the God who says, the Lord is an all-consuming fire. With the God who says, if anyone keeps all of the law but fails at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. How do we get right with that God? Justification is the answer to that question. Now, we, we all come in here with different things that we're thinking about, different burdens, and, and, and I don't know that every one of you walked in this morning with that burden of how does a sinner get right with God? But let me say that even if that's not the question that you were asking walking in here this morning, that is the most important question in your life. How can you be made right with God? The most important question is not about your job. It's not about your family. It's not about your relationships. It's not about your money. It's not about politics. It's about the eternal state of your soul and how you can be made right with God. And justification answers that. And so what we understand from the gospel is that, again, we've all sinned against God. We deserve his anger. We deserve his righteous, just condemnation for our sin. It's the only appropriate penalty for sinning against such a great God. And if left to ourselves, we all would perish in our sin. But the good news is that God, in his grace and in his kindness, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, the son of God, into the world. And when Jesus came into the world, he lived a perfect life. And in living that perfect life, he fulfilled the law perfectly. And then he went to the cross and he died on the cross as a substitute in the place of all who would turn from their sins and place their trust in Christ alone. And he raised, he was raised from the grave on the third day and he's promised to come back and judge the world and to take his people to be with him forever. That's the gospel that Christians embrace. But this idea of righteousness is dealing with kind of the mechanics of how that actually works. So how God is, is able to do that and still be a just God. How can God just say, your sin is gone? Your sin is canceled. The same God who said he must punish sin. Justification answers that question. Definition of justification is to be declared righteous. It's a declaration. It's a declaration by God that a sinner who trusts in Jesus Christ is now righteous in God's sight. So Romans chapter 4, verse 4 and 5 says this. It says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so the righteousness that's being spoken of in that text is the same righteousness from God spoken of in verse 9 of Philippians 3. So do you notice in verse 9 that he speaks of being found in him? It's the idea of union with Christ. So, so this is how it works. Justification puts us in the realm of the courtroom. You have a judge, God himself, 
you have a defendant, all of humanity, and then you have a prosecutor, God himself. We're guilty. We've committed all of the crimes that are against us. And what God does is God the Son comes and he lives that perfect life. And, and, and this, this is, if it wasn't in the Bible, it would be, it would be just so hard to believe. But he takes the righteousness of Jesus, everything that Jesus earned in his life, and he gives it to the guilty criminal, us. And then Jesus goes and he pays, he, he takes the sentence upon himself. And so then in that moment, the judge lifts up the gavel and he says, righteous. You're good to go. You're free. Righteous in my sight. That's... <laughs> That's justification. It's crazy. And so now let's, let's, let's try to put it all together. So, 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 we, so Paul, we want to we go back to his resume, right? So all the things that Paul listed that he's now counting as loss. So we talked about it. Circumcised on the eighth day, that's a religious privilege. Of the people of Israel, an ethnic privilege. Of the tribe of Benjamin, ancestral privilege. A Hebrew of Hebrews, cultural privilege. As to the law, a Pharisee, educational privilege. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, personality privilege. As to righteousness under the law, blameless, moral privilege. And so Paul is saying, if anybody has reason for confidence in, in human effort or status, it's him. That's a pretty good spiritual resume. But he counts it loss when he sees Christ. Why? Well, we've seen Paul's resume, but I'm here to tell you that it's absolutely nothing compared to Jesus' resume. Paul has a resume, but let's talk about Jesus' resume right now. First of all, Jesus is God. He's God. So, so Paul can list all of these things, and the very first thing on Jesus' resume trumps it. He's divine. He's the Son of God. He's the Eternal One. He's the Holy One of Israel. He's God. That, that should end the discussion right there. But we'll continue with Jesus' resume. He lived a perfect life. So Paul can talk about blamelessness under the law, but that's only from a human standpoint of what was uh, outwardly observable. But Jesus actually lived a perfect life. And, 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 and not only did he obey the law perfectly, but he's the law giver. He's the one who made the law. The law is based on his character. He's the Holy One of God. Jesus Loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength at every single moment and loved his neighbor as himself at every single moment of his life. Jesus said in John chapter 8, he said, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. <laughs> who could say that? I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Later on in John chapter 8, Jesus said, which one of you here can accuse me of sin? And it was straight crickets. Nobody could say anything. He's sinless. 
Jesus honored his parents. Children, my children in the building. (laughs) Jesus honored his parents. He obeyed his parents all the time. At every single moment, Jesus always obeyed. And he did that for you so that in those moments when you disobey your parents, which are wrong, and you deserve to be punished for your disobedience to your parents, Jesus actually suffered the punishment for all of your disobedience to your parents. And so what that should produce in all of the children in the building is a love to Jesus, to look to the one who perfectly obeyed and got punished for all of your disobedience and to trust him this morning. And here's the thing. Jesus honored his parents, but he created his parents. (laughs) His parents were created by him. All things were made by him, for him, through him, and yet he submitted himself to earthly authority. He never lied. He always told the truth in every situation. In fact, he is the truth. He's the embodiment of the truth. We're talking about Jesus' resume, y'all. He never stole anything from anybody, but rather, no one has ever been more generous than Jesus. He, He gave everything that he had. He gave the most valuable thing in the universe, his own life, for the sake of his enemies. Such was his generosity. And so this is the beauty of it all. How does a person receive this? By faith. By faith. You see it? Verse 9, that righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says says it twice right there, just so we get the point. It's a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, through believing in him, trusting in him, turning from our own efforts of righteousness. And so this is relevant for the Christian life as well. So oftentimes we'll see passages like this and say, oh, well, that's great for for unbelievers, praise God. But this is for Christians. And and, and let me just try try to parse that out a little bit. You see, oftentimes when Christians sin, it's because we've forgotten where our righteousness comes from. We've put something else in the blank here. So Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from... And then we'll put something in the, in the blank. So Paul puts the law here, right? He puts his, his, compliment, his accomplishments as an Israelite. But what we'll do, and, and this is not something that we even think about consciously, but it's what we're doing in those moments. We'll put in not having a righteousness of my own that comes from my reputation or my job or my willpower or my discipline, or my intelligence, or being a good parent, or my spiritual gifts. We're tempted to rely on those things as a basis of making ourselves right before God. And so here's how you know, these are a few examples of how you can know if this is something that you wrestle with. If you're ever tempted to look down on someone because they struggle with something different than what you struggle with, 
it's because you're putting something else in the blank here. You're saying a righteousness of my own that comes from my own godliness and holiness. If you, if you always have to be right, it, it comes back to this. Because you're, you're finding your righteousness in that moment in being right, right? If, 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 you're mad, if you get mad at people who don't serve the same way that you serve, you're finding your righteousness. It's, it's having a righteousness of your own that comes through your Christian service. When you, try, when you try to appear more godly than you actually are, that's what's happening. It's finding righteousness elsewhere. It's, it's at the root of most of your relational conflict. It's finding righteousness somewhere else. Here's one. When you can't forgive somebody and you've grown bitter, because you can't forgive them for what they've done to you. In that moment, you're denying the reality of justification by faith alone, both for you and for the person. And so it's only through this kind of experiential, saving knowledge of Christ that we'll be able to properly assess things and to see things rightly, assets, liabilities, and that's why he calls all of his achievements rubbish. And the word there for rubbish, the idea is street filth. It's that which is meant to be thrown to the dogs. And it's a play on his reference to dogs earlier in the chapter in verse 2. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says, it says all of our righteous acts are as filthy rags before God. That's the idea. And so know this, true Christians repent not only of our sins, but we repent of our righteousness. True Christians not only repent of our sins, but we repent of our righteousness. The iniquity of our holy things. It's, it's the John Bunyan quote. that the ho- He said, the holiest prayer that I've ever prayed has enough sin in it to condemn a whole world having a right assessment, using the right standard. And he says, it's nothing. It's, it's lost. Get it away from me. It's filthy compared to the surpassing worth to gaining Christ. And so I just want to close with this uh, story in the New Testament about a woman who rightly assessed things. I think it's a good illustration. Uh, turning your Bibles to John chapter 12, And we'll end with this. John chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. A couple things to notice from this passage. Mary does three things that are absolutely shocking, and they show how she's assessing things. The first thing that she does in verse 3, she pours out, she breaks a, a pound of expensive ointment. It's hard to understand in our context what that means, but, but that, that perfume was a family heirloom. It was the most valuable thing that they had. It, it was worth a year's wages of salary. It was the most expensive, valuable thing that that family had. That's shocking that she would just break it like that. The second thing that she did is that she let her hair down. Now, in that society, it was considered scandalous for a woman to, in public, just let her hair down. It was something that was, that was only done at home. It was a gesture of intimacy. And so what is Mary saying in doing that? She, she, she's saying she's giving everything that she has to the Lord. The third thing that she does is she wipes his feet with her hair. Shocking, shocking in that culture. So do you see her love for Jesus? Do you hear the echoes of Mary? If you would have asked Mary, why are you doing this? I think she would have said something to the effect of, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus. That room, in that room filled with religious people, who were looking down their noses at this woman doing this. Mary was the wisest person in the room, and Jesus commended her. He looked favorably upon her for it. He said, for the poor you always have, but you don't always have me. Jesus has a right understanding of his value and worth, and by the grace of God, so did Mary. She counted the most valuable thing that she had, her money, her reputation, she counted it as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. By God's grace, may we do the same. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we ask for your help. We pray that you would, um, would give us eyes to see that, um, that, that, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that you would give us um, knowledge, revelation of who you are. Um, by your grace, Lord, um, may every person in this room under the sound of my voice know Christ experientially, know Christ savingly, and may we live the rest of our lives in all eternity for the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.